Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Julie, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I just want to give a special welcome to you, especially if you're new or visiting with us this morning. We're always just so glad to have you here. Uh, So this morning, we are currently in a series on the Sermon on the Mount that we are calling Countercultural Kingdom. And we're calling it that because in Jesus' day, when he was giving this message, this sermon, much of what he was saying would have been very countercultural. It would have gone against the grain of the rest of society. And as we study it today, we see that that's actually still true for us now. Much of what he says is countercultural. And so we're going to talk today about what that looks like, what it looks like for us to live that way. Uh, and we'll be continuing to do that throughout the series. So before I forget, though, I do want to mention that we are taking questions during this sermon. So if you have a question, uh, I screenshotted this from the website because I've had a few questions about, like, how do I submit a question? Um, And so this is what it looks like on the website. I realize I probably should have done it on my phone because you guys will probably be on your phones. But that's the box you're looking for. Um, It's anonymous. You can submit a question while I'm giving this message. So it's okay if you're on your phone. I won't uh, be mad. Um, And then afterwards, Joel will kind of look through them and pick a couple, and I will try my best to respond to them. So if you have any questions throughout the message, feel free to go to rescitychurch.org, and it's just on that front page. You can find this question box. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and this chance to gather um, to reflect on the changing of the seasons and how in the same way that you bring new life and change uh, in our world around us, you do that in us as well. So Lord, this morning, will you bring that new life? Will you bring change in our hearts and in our minds so that we can follow you even more closely? In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so we are going to pick up where we left off in Matthew chapter 5, and today we're looking at verses 17 through 20. So if you want to follow along, if you have a Bible with you, or if you've got your phone, we'll be in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus is continuing in his sermon, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so if you've been here with us for the last couple weeks, this might feel like a little bit of a strange pivot for Jesus. Uh, Before this, he was talking about who is hashtag blessed in the kingdom. Uh, And then last week we talked about, he kind of gave instructions about how we are to be salt and to be light in the world. And then suddenly he says, don't you dare think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets because I did not. And we might be like, okay, I wasn't really thinking that, Jesus, but thank you for telling me. Uh, But in Jesus's time, this is a question that many people might have had. 
And so in the same way that when Joel or I preach and we know that we're going to be doing question and response afterwards, we kind of think a little bit more about like, what questions might people ask me, right? I want to be ready for this. I want to think about how I can best respond to what is on your mind and on your heart. And I think Jesus is doing the same thing. He's anticipating the questions of the people around him. And some of the people who were listening to Jesus were probably a little confused about what he was saying, and here's why. At the start of the message, Matthew says, so at the very beginning of chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So actually, I think the first week we got a question about, like, is there any significance about Jesus being on the mount, the Sermon on the Mount? And we decided not to answer it because we knew we would get to it uh, in this message. So that phrase that Matthew uses, he went up on the mountainside, it's basically a quote from Exodus 19, verse 3, where Moses, this guy in the Old Testament, goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. Uh, in the Old Testament. And all the people that are following Jesus at this point, the crowd that's around them, they all know the Old Testament and the law really well. It's like a big part of their culture, a part of their religion, a part of their understanding of what it means to follow God. So they knew their Old Testament. They knew the law. They knew the prophets. um, And they knew that there was sort of a, an expectation that one day there would be another prophet who would give, who would be kind of in the um, same line as Moses, who would be giving them uh, this message, and that they were told they were supposed to listen to that. So in Deuteronomy 18:15, if you want to check the reference there, uh, that's when it says that they're expecting someone to come who would be like Moses, but even greater. So when Jesus gets up on a mountainside the same way that Moses did and starts telling people, hey, this is how you're supposed to live your life. This is what it looks like to follow God. You can understand where their minds went. They're thinking questions like, okay, are you the new Moses? And if so, are you giving us a different law than the one that Moses gave us? What are we supposed to do with the old law then? Like, how does this work together? And what exactly are you doing, Jesus? Because it's just like so far, this message you've been giving us sounds nothing like what we would have expected it to. So Jesus gets up there and he starts answering the questions that he knows people are probably thinking uh, and, and wants to kind of get ahead of that. And he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So this is the statement we're really going to kind of try to break down today, try to really understand. If Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, then what is he doing? And how does he fulfill the law? And why does that matter for us today? So let's start with the idea that he didn't come to abolish the law. One thing that's important to know, that when Jesus says in verse 17, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets was sort of a shorthand for referencing all of the scripture that they had at that point. So all of the Old Testament. And if you'll allow me to be truly nerdy for a moment, um, the literary device that that's called, this is in the, in the literary world, you would call this a synecdoche, 
which is just a really fun word to say. You can say it with me if you want. Synecdoche. Yeah, it's kind of fun. It's one of my favorite literary, literary devices, partly just because it's fun to say. But it's something we use that it, even now. So if, you, if I said to you, hey, you got to come check out my new wheels, right? I want you to come look at my car, right? I, I don't want you to come look at just the wheels on my car. I'm referring to the whole car, and I'm saying, hey, you should come check out my new wheels. So it's the same kind of thing. When Jesus says the law and the prophets, it's standing in for kind of all of the scripture that they would have had at this point. So all of the Old Testament as we know it. And Jesus is saying the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament, uh, all of, when he's referring to that, he's also referring to all of the revealed instruction that the people of God would have had at this time. So if you read through the Old Testament, there are like 600 plus different laws at different points throughout it. And then there's also just the story, the narrative of it. It tells this history of God's people and how he interacts with them. And then we also have the words of the prophets, right? This summer we went through the book of Jeremiah and heard all of his messages that he had for God's people. So all of that, everything that, you, that encompasses that, uh, he says in verse 18, Truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And when he says the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen, uh, some translations say iota and dot, or if you want to go to like the King James, it says a jot and a tittle. Uh, this is just like the, the letters in the alphabet or like the parts of a letter, like the stroke of a letter that is part of it. So he's saying literally every part of it, all of the things that have been written down, uh, I'm not here to take away from any of that. All of this stuff, I'm not coming to abolish it. I'm not coming to get rid of it. I'm coming to fulfill it. And this is consistent with how we see Jesus act in his life. So just before this in Matthew chapter four, uh, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan. And he responds to these temptations actually with the words of scripture, with the words of the Old Testament. When he has been fasting for 40 days and Satan comes and says, hey, I bet you're really hungry. Why don't you just turn those stones into bread? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, a piece of scripture from the Old Testament, and says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then when Satan shows him the whole world and says, hey, all of this could be yours. I'll give you all of it. All you have to do is worship me. Jesus responds and says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, which is straight from Deuteronomy 6. So clearly Jesus doesn't think that the law and the Old Testament and everything that comes with it needs to be done away with because he actually lives his life by it. He has it memorized. He quotes it when he's in difficult times or times of trial. He views it as wisdom and something that he tries to live out every chance he gets. So he's not here to cancel the law or to get rid of it because it's something that he actually believes and follows himself. And this would all be great, and we could just be done now and go home, except that Jesus spends the rest of the Sermon on the Mount saying things like, you've heard it said, and then he might insert a little piece from the law, and then he'll say, but I tell you this. 
Or he'll say things like, don't do it this way, do it this way. Which to our modern ears sounds like he's changing the law. And Joel's going to get into all the specifics of that in the next couple of weeks. Um, so if you have like really specific questions about some of those laws that are coming up, we will get to them. But I do want to give you just an example that we can kind of use to kind of understand where we're going with this. So just shortly after this, in verse 27, he says, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So don't commit adultery, right? Straight out of the Ten Commandments. Straight out of the thing that when we think of the law, those are like the number one things that might come to our minds. And he says, yeah, I, you know, you've heard it said this, but I'm going to tell you this. So again, it sounds like Jesus is changing the law. So what's up with that? Because he said he wasn't going to abolish it. How does it fit together? I like how Bible scholar John Stott says it. He says, Jesus' purpose is not to change the law, still less to cancel it, but to reveal the full depth of meaning that it was intended to hold. In other words, Jesus reveals the full meaning of the law. So in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't nullify the laws that already existed with what he says. Instead, he makes the original intent of the law even clearer. So he says, yeah, God told you not to commit adultery because it's not wise. It's not the intention for marriage. Um, and especially in Jesus's time, it treated other people like objects and unfairly. Uh, but he kind of says, in the same way, lusting after them also then goes against the law. It goes against the same spirit or the same wisdom as the idea that you aren't to commit adultery. And the verb that's used there, the to fulfill, like the literal meaning is to fill or to bring to fullness. Chrysostom, one of the Middle Eastern early church fathers, expressed it this way in saying, Jesus' sayings were no repeal of the former, but a drawing out and filling up of them. So what Jesus is doing is he's bringing the people back to the idea that these laws are not just set up as arbitrary things that you're supposed to follow or like a game where you need to check all of the boxes in order to win, but they're about wisdom. They're about the ways in which God has created us to live and they're guidelines that when we follow them, they lead to the most full expression of life that we can experience. So he says, sure, you can follow the law of not committing adultery, but if you're doing it in your mind with lust, don't you think you're kind of missing the point? He's making the laws less about what you do on the outside and more about, how you be, or more about what's going on in your heart. So it's less about external behavior and more about internal uh, thoughts and desires. And in doing all of this, uh, he's really taking some shots at the Pharisees, who are people who, you, you know, they're a group of people who show up a lot in the New Testament, and they probably would have been um, hearing this either while they were there or kind of through the grapevine. And the Pharisees were people who were thought of as like the most righteous people, right? They were the ones, they kind of, their whole job was kind of to like sit around, talk about the law debate it, decide, like, what does it really mean to follow the law, and how are we going to do that, and how are we going to make everybody else around us do the same thing? So if you saw them from the outside, 
uh, you would have thought that they looked like they had it all together. They are the people who you looked at and you're like, yep, they, they're the ones who know the law and follow it, and they are very righteous. Would have looked like they never made mistakes, and they knew every aspect of the law. Or at least they thought they did. But Jesus comes on the scene, and he starts challenging some of the assumptions that the Pharisees had and were teaching. And again, like I said, Joel's going to get into more detail on that in the next couple of weeks uh, about some of the ones that we get in the Sermon on the Mount. But I wanted to uh, take us to an example, kind of outside of the Sermon on the Mount, where we really see this dynamic play out between Jesus and the Pharisees. So we see lots of conversations between Jesus and this group, um, and I think this one really helps us understand the message that Jesus is trying to get across. So in Matthew 23, we're skipping ahead here, uh, here's an example of what we hear from Jesus in regard to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. First of all, like, that's just a really great line from Jesus. Uh, it's just kind of absurd, right? The idea of straining out a gnat, like the tiniest insect, and then swallowing a camel. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the kids' book or like kids' rhyme where it's like, there was an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed a fly, right? And then she keeps swallowing bigger and bigger animals as she goes to try and catch the fly. The whole thing is ridiculous, right? And it's meant to sort of make kids laugh and be funny, and it's just absurd. And in the same way, I think Jesus is trying to be a little absurd here. He's trying to say, this is ridiculous. What you're doing is absurd, so what does he mean? He's talking about this practice of tithing, uh, which was giving away a certain percentage of your money or your material items at this point to the temple to support the temple workers, and some of it went to the poor as well. Uh, and Jesus points out that the Pharisees follow this law so specifically that they are even giving away, they're like meticulously measuring out a tenth of all of their spices, right? Can you think about that? It sounds so silly. I think about my spice cabinet at home, and it's like, if I had to measure out a tenth of every single one of those, like, it's so time-consuming, so unnecessary. And he's saying, you spend all this time focusing on these little things, these absolute little details, and trying to push the law to its absolute limits. And you could say, well, isn't that a good thing? Right? It seems like they're really trying to follow God. They're really trying to follow the law. But Jesus says, while you're over there measuring your spices, you have neglected the more important matters of the law, things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. You go so far to tithe your spices and do every tiny little thing that you can think of, but while you're doing that, you've missed the whole point. You've missed the big picture while you're so focused on these small details. You've strained the gnat only to end up that you're swallowing a camel. He goes on to say, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, 
First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. So again, externally, the Pharisees looks like the ones that have it all together. But internally, Jesus says they're full of greed and self-indulgence. And he uses this metaphor of a cup or a dish being clean on the outside, but not on the inside. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever like unloaded your dishwasher super quickly and just put everything away, and then later you come back to grab a bowl out and you're like, what? This is still dirty. How did I miss that? That's because on the outside it looked clean, and so you didn't think about it, and then suddenly you're pouring your cereal and you're like, oh, man. And so this is what's happening with the Pharisees. They look like they have it together. They look like they're following God, but inside... They're doing it for all of the wrong reasons. Their motivations, their internal desires for why they're trying to do these things is not actually about following God and his ways. And he's saying, if you clean the inside, if you deal with your heart, deal with that greed, that selfish uh, ambition, that indulgence, and you follow me from your heart first, then the outside will actually follow. Because if it's what you desire, then you're going to walk in those ways almost second nature. And if you've been with us this summer, uh, just a couple weeks ago actually, it sounds a lot like something we heard in Jeremiah. Just a few weeks ago, I preached on Jeremiah 31, and we talked about uh, this verse, Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I actually just took the slide straight from uh, the sermons from a couple weeks ago. Because God promised that one day he was going to write the law on our hearts and on our minds. And it would become something that was so dear to us, something that we wanted so much that the outside, the actual external following of the law would just become second nature. We would love God and and understand what he has done for us, and so it would just impact all of the rest of our life. It would flow out of that understanding of who he is. And Jesus says the same idea here. Follow me from your heart, and all the rest will follow. And I think that generally, this is an idea that we're on board with, right? We read that kind of critique of the Pharisees, and we're like, yeah, you should care about things like mercy and justice and faithfulness. And who cares about all those little details of the law, right? Like, those don't matter. We really just need to care about these big ideas here. But notice what Jesus says. He says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And I don't, I don't know why I really struggle with latter and former. Every time I'm like, think, think, which one is which? How does it correspond? Um, so if you have the same problem as me, uh, he says you should have practiced mercy, justice, and faithfulness, but not without neglecting the law and the tithing and these other things. So he's not actually criticizing the Pharisees for following the law. Jesus is actually not criticizing the law. He did not come to abolish the law, but he's more concerned with the heart behind it. He cares more about why the Pharisees are doing these things, right? What's their motivation? Is it just to look good? Is it to feel good about themselves? Is it so that they can look down on other people who aren't as righteous as them? Because that's not what Jesus wants. He wants us to have the law written on our hearts, to care so much about the things of God and about following him 
that it will naturally follow that we follow his instructions. So that these things that God tells us to do, they will actually make sense to us when we understand who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him. So let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 20, this is what he says. He says, I tell you, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees do follow the law, and they appear righteous. Uh, and Jesus says, unless you can do what they do, but actually do it from your heart and have the right motivation behind it, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because in Jesus' kingdom, it's not about external appearances. It's about true faith and true desire to live that out. Now, I want to talk about how this applies to us. Because if the idea of following the law uh, wasn't intimidating enough, now Jesus says, not only do you have to follow it, but you have to do it with the right motivation. feels impossible. And ultimately, it's because it is. As sinful, broken humans, we will never live up to that standard. And that's where we take comfort in the fact that not only did Jesus fulfill the law and that he helped like, fulfill it to its fullness, help us understand the full meaning of it, uh, but he also fulfilled the law in that he actually does it on our behalf. Someone want to advance the slide for me? I don't know what's... My clicker's not working. Uh, so Jesus fulfills the law on our behalf. His righteousness actually does exceed that of the Pharisees. Jesus followed all of God's ways. <laughs> he did everything right, not just in an external, look at me, I'm doing the right thing, but actually in wanting to follow God. He lived out the spirit and the heart of the command of God. And he did this all the way to his death when he said, not my will be done, Father, but yours. I will follow what you tell me to do, even if it means giving up my own life for the sake of others. And when he died on the cross, he took on all of our sin, all of the sin we knew we were committing, and all of the times that maybe we were like the Pharisees where we strained a gnat only to swallow a camel. He took the consequences of all of the sin, and in doing so, he fulfilled the law, and the prophets, and the whole Old Testament. Everything in Scripture, everything that we see in the Old Testament points towards what Jesus did in his life. Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system, becoming the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. He fulfills the law, giving us the perfect example of what it looks like to worship God in everything he did. And he fulfills the words of the prophets who spoke about the coming judgment and the coming rescue of God's people. All the, law, all the prophets, all of the story of the Old Testament, it all points ahead to Jesus. And I think one of the helpful things about hearing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount now is that we get the benefit of looking back and seeing what he did in his life, seeing the cross, seeing the resurrection. Uh, the people who are listening to it in real time, didn't know what was going to happen next, right? They didn't get to see that full uh, thing until after. I think it must have been a really confusing sermon to listen to, honestly, in the moment. And because of all of this, we don't have to be afraid of not following the law. We don't have to worry that if we don't do everything right, God won't love us. 
Because of Christ and his sacrificial, sacrificial death and resurrection, we know that we are secure in his righteousness. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says that God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes all of our sin and we get all of his righteousness. It's the most unfair deal in history and it's one that we would be crazy not to accept. And oftentimes when we talk about this, this is where we end. We say, Jesus fulfilled the law, so I don't have to. And that's true. We are considered righteous because of what Jesus did for us. End of sentence, case closed. There's nothing we can do to add to that righteousness on our own. And I don't think that's where Jesus would end this conversation. Jesus is king. He brought his kingdom of heaven near to us. And in the kingdom of heaven, there are certain ways that people are called to live. They don't have to, it's not like, a, oh, if you make a mistake and you don't live that way, we're going to kick you out of the kingdom, right? That's not the way it works. And at the same time, when it truly comes to following Jesus, when we believe what he, he is who he says he is and that he did what he did on the cross and in the resurrection, then that should change us, should change from the inside out how we live our lives. So as a result of our new life in Christ, we're transformed people by his love and his grace, and we choose to follow Christ and his wisdom. And I think that's why he says in verse 18, uh, oh, sorry, uh, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Many things have been accomplished up to this point. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again. And at the same time, we're still waiting for him to come back and to make everything new. We're waiting for everything to still be accomplished. And until then, there are commands that we are given to follow. Not as a punishment, not as a means to prove ourselves, but because they lead to wisdom, because they lead to love and to the greater things like mercy and justice and faithfulness. And he's given them to us, and he's given us his Holy Spirit as a guide so that we might continue to walk in his ways and f navigate these tricky things like what it looks like to follow his commands. And if it feels like I've been going back and forth on this the whole time, like the law really matters, but it doesn't because of Jesus, but it does, then I think we're in the right spot. I think this is a tension we have to live with. Jesus fulfilled the law, and we're called to continue to walk in his ways until he returns. Not for our salvation, but for our good, and for the world's good. It's a tension that we're going to have to wrestle with the rest of our lives. But it's one that we don't have to wrestle with alone. We have our, the church community that God has put us in. We have his Holy Spirit. And we have Jesus himself as an example and someone we can look to in scripture who lived a human life, who knows what it feels like to wrestle and to feel temptation and yet still continues to walk in God's ways. So I do, with all of that, I do want to take some time to talk a little bit about what it looks like to wrestle with these. So I want to take some questions, if we have any, uh, and just kind of wrestle through those things together a little bit. 
Okay, so a couple questions here. Um, first one, uh, paraphrasing a little bit. What do you think the reaction from people would have been when Jesus says that he wants to abolish, not abolish, but fulfill the law? Uh, I think there would probably be a lot of different reactions there. Um, I think the Pharisees uh, would have been, they wouldn't have wanted to abolish the law, right? Something that they was like a badge of honor that they followed the law really well. So I think they would have been like, yeah, we don't want to abolish the law. But I think they also would have been confused about, like, what do you mean to fulfill it? And then he goes on throughout the rest of the sermon, like I said, to say, all these interpretations of the law that you have been making are actually not consistent with God's ways. And I'm going to show you what the full meaning of that looks like. So, I mean, ultimately, I don't think the Sermon on the Mount would have been received well by the Pharisees. <laughs> I think they would have been not excited about that. Um, I do think some of the people who are there would have been really confused by it. And I think there would have been people who thought that Jesus was coming to abolish the law, right? They wanted to kind of have a revolution, a little bit of a um, change of the ways things had been and like a totally new way of doing things. And so when Jesus said, no, I am actually still here in the tradition of the old ways and following the tradition of the old ways, I think they might have been a little disappointed by that because they were kind of hoping for a revolution and to kind of overthrow the people in power and make some big changes. So I think overall the Sermon on the Mount, and again, the reason why we call it countercultural kingdom is because it's very different than what you would have expected. And so I think probably the predominant emotion would have been confusion. At least that's what it would have been for me if I had been there. All right, uh, last one here. What are some things that we could focus on today, the more modern examples, that are like straining a gnat or tithing from our spices, um, but are actually swallowing a camel or neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness? That's a really good question. I think I'd have to think about it for a while to really come up with some specific examples, but I think a lot of times we find ways to make excuses or um, kind of get around loving people who are different from us in different ways um, or maybe who are hard to love because we might think, well, you know, they're not following the typical way of doing things and so, you know, they need to do it this way in order to really fit in or in order for us to really love them. Um, and I think Jesus would be like, whoa, <laughs> big picture here. Again, like, what's the big picture? It's to love people, love God and love people. And so when we try to, like, make people fit our cultural way of doing something or say, like, well, if you're not willing to do all of the normal things that I do in following Jesus, then, you're, you know, that doesn't really count. You're not really a follower of Jesus or you can't really be a part of this community. I think Jesus would say, hold on, let's revisit the big picture here. Um, so I don't know. That's the kind of the first example that comes to mind for me, but I, I'm sure there are a lot of them. And ones that I don't even see in my own life. I'm sure there are ways that I, I swallow camels all the time. Okay, actually one more that just came in. Okay. Um, we'll end on this one. Uh, a lot of the, so, you know, some of the laws that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount are pretty, you know, they translate to all societies, but some of the laws are really obscure to Israel like building codes, dietary restrictions, and punishments that, you know, no one uses anymore. How do we, 
respond to those or how do we make sense of those in Jesus fulfilling the law still for us today with, with kind of stuff like that that is very not applicable to us? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. Um, and different Christians approach this differently. So um, I'll share a little bit of how some people might think about it, and I'll share a little bit about how I tend to approach it. Um, one way that people historically have thought about that is they've looked at the laws in the Old Testament, all 600 plus of them, um, and kind of divided it into three categories. They'll say like, well, which ones are civil laws, which ones are ceremonial laws, and which ones are moral laws? And then they'll say the civil and ceremonial, those were just specific to Israel, and the moral laws are the ones that we need to kind of continue on. And I think that sounds great in theory, but in practice, it's really hard to like sort out which laws are, like, is that a civil law? You know, like, don't, I don't know. There's all sorts of laws that are really specific about, like, your donkeys or your neighbor's donkey or, like, stuff like that. And it's like, well, is that civil or is that moral? Like, don't steal your, I don't know. Like, things like that where it just gets tricky. Like, I don't know if that, which category that falls in. Um, the way that I would tend to approach it is kind of going with this main idea from the sermon today of just, like, what's the heart behind the law? What's the spirit or the wisdom of the law? So, right, the example of adultery, don't commit adultery, it's not just that one thing, but it's, like, how do we view other people and our sexuality and our, like, understanding of how we interact with people in that way? And so um, one example that people like to give from the Old Testament is the, like, don't put ink on yourself or like whatever, and people are like, oh, that means you can't get tattoos. It's like, okay, sure, you could read it that way. Um, if you look at kind of the history behind like what the ink that people were doing, it was more about like pledging allegiance to these pagan gods or like had to do with like these elaborate ceremonies to these gods. Um, it really had more to do with like worshiping other gods. And so I think you could think, what's the spirit behind that, and how do I translate it then? Like, is there something that in our culture represents worshiping something other than God, um, whether it's money or success or whatever it is, and then say, like, okay, how do I change how I live so that I am not doing that in my life now? So it's a lot more work to do it that way because you have to try to understand the original context and then try to, like, parse through, like, what does that mean then for me today, and how can I live that out? Um, and that's where I would, again, say, like, go back to do this in community, do this with other Christians, do this with the help of the Holy Spirit, and looking at the New Testament, filter everything through Jesus and how he lived his life. Um, so it's definitely a lot more work, but that's kind of how I would think through some of those old laws that seem un irrelevant to our lives today. All right. Thank you for your questions. It's always great to um, hear what you guys are thinking about and to dialogue together. I know I benefit from hearing and learning from other people as well, too. We are going to transition now into our time of worship and communion and prayer. And so taking communion every week, uh, I know we say this every week, but it really is its our helpful reminder of uh, what Jesus did for us. And in this case, him living his perfect life, going to the cross, dying sacrificially for us and rising again, it's that reminder that he has fulfilled the law. And so if you find yourself feeling stuck 
about not being good enough or not living up to standards or feeling like God doesn't love you, I hope that taking communion today is is a reminder and an encouragement uh, that he has fulfilled the law on our behalf. And hopefully then it's it's an encouragement to keep going and to keep following the ways of Jesus um, because of that, as a response to what he has done for us. We'll also have someone, um, if you would like prayer, you can uh, look for someone in the back and they will pray with you if you have anything you want to pray about. Uh, And then we will be also worshiping through song uh, together. So I'm going to pray for us and we will head into that time of response. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the fact that you have fulfilled the law on our behalf. Thank you that you have fulfilled all of scripture, that everything points to you. Uh, and that we can look to you and we're confused about something or trying to understand something. And that thank you, Lord, that you have given us wisdom. You've given us wisdom in how to live. And even though sometimes the Bible may feel old and outdated, uh, we know that your wisdom is something that is, continues to be true no matter the circumstance and no matter the, the time or the culture. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to seek wisdom, help us to seek you uh, each and every day that we could follow after you more closely. And help us to do it together as a community. In your name we pray. Amen.